Welcome to another edition of Obvious Startup Advice, the podcast. I'm Eric Marcoulier, a startup coach and blogger, and I write about the aphorisms I use every week to describe best practices to my clients. This week, we're looking at the anatomy of a successful pivot. And while that's not an aphorism, it's certainly a rarity worth discussing. The company is Rebrick, and my guests are founder and CEO Chris Oltian and chief revenue officer Rich Grote. Both are startup veterans with more than a dozen previous startups between them. As you'll hear, Rebrick has been through several iterations. This week's podcast is brought to you by a random person on LinkedIn, Kelly Perkinson, channel marketer at Westcon Comstore New Zealand. I guarantee you, she's never going to hear this podcast, but still, Kelly, this one's for you. And now, on to the conversation. All right, so I've got Chris Oltian and Rich Grow hey, nice from Rebrick. Hey there. And I am so excited to share and have you share exactly how this pivot took place because I get asked so often, how does one effectively pivot from one business idea to another? And I'm constantly saying, oh, you should talk to Chris, you should talk to Rich. And then at the end of the day, you guys are kind of busy right now because you're just uh, about to close a new round of funding as well. So let's start with Chris, if you would give me some backstory very briefly on the evolution of Rebrick over the last several years. So briefly, Rebrick version one, we were going to make hiring better. We built this cool ML AI platform for helping you hire people, and that didn't work. So then we switched kind of to a recruiting version of that, where we helped you find diverse qualified candidates by removing unconscious by the hiring process. Got one person to pay for that in two years. Not quite sustainable. So we took the core tech, and then we moved to machine learning managed because managing a bunch of machine learning models is something that we had figured out. Some other people were interested and then realized that nobody actually knew what machine learning was. Morphed that into a vague AML kind of anti-money laundering tool set and started talking to tech stars in Western Union, got into that accelerator, and then we had it. We had the idea finally where we refined it into sanctions list compliance, where we helped people prevent bad actors from getting paid, except that we didn't have it. We had a couple contracts, it was going okay, but they were like nine month sales cycles. So these were giant financial institutions we were selling into, nothing was going anywhere. COVID hit, everything slammed to a halt. And then we're like, somebody has to be doing something. And that was the pivot that introduced us to where we are today, which is game license management, where we help managing your gambling licenses on a single platform. So I'm looking forward in this call to, towards the end, comparing and contrasting previous pivots to this most recent one that seems to have taken quite well. Give me a little bit more understanding of what Rebrick does today. So right now it's pretty straightforward. We are TurboTax for gaming licenses. If you ever have to get a gambling license, it's this complicated 33 to 60 page set of forms. And if you're doing it in multiple states, that's literally hundreds and hundreds of pages of forms you have to fill out. So we have an intelligent system that'll collect the data that you need and then spit it out into the appropriate forms and help you get it out into the appropriate regulatory agencies. Hey, this is Rich. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide just a little bit of context. And that is when we say gaming, we're not talking about tabletop games or video games or any of that stuff. It is for very large sports betting companies. At least that's where we started. We found out that they have a big pain around managing the occupational licenses that a lot of their customer support people have to have in order to do their job across jurisdictions where those kind of licenses are required. We found out that it was it was taking about four or five weeks for those to happen. And as Chris said, it's pages and pages of filling up the same thing over and over again. And that was a huge piece of friction. And it meant that if they do, didn't do it well, they couldn't staff up in time to really compete in the markets that were going live as sports betting is going crazy and, and, and going live across different states in the U.S. And so there's this big chaotic environment. And we're in the place of saying, let me pick the most boring thing we can do and sell picks and shovels during the gold rush. So from the employee perspective, it's TurboTax. From the compliance manager side, they're trying to figure out what's the status of 500 or 1,000 or more licenses that I have across the entire organization. 
it, you're making it much more glamorous than it sounds, and I appreciate that. I'm, I'm not know. making it glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> but you are. And I, I want to like just say, for the record, it's not like we're like, I wonder if sports books have a real issue finding their occupational licenses for their multitude of employees in a multi-jurisdictional system. So, let's investigate that. So let's was, just be clear. When we started this pivot, we thought a sports book was like, I don't know, a book about football. We didn't have anything so, idea, any idea that this thing existed. So I'm going to jump in here because I had a front row seat at the moment that this pivot occurred. Dear readers, I am on the board of Rebrick. I've known both Chris and Rich for over a decade. And your loss. So I want to say it was what, maybe July, the board meeting? I think, Chris, you're looking it up right now on in the calendar. But let's say August, just for yucks. Uh, and, June 12th. Oh, June 12th. Fair enough. June 12th, board meeting, and you a couple of times during the during the board meeting jokingly referred to the idea that maybe we should mothball the company for the time being because COVID absolutely fucked the whole compliance issue idea. It went from being something that was interesting to tons of different providers or services to something that nobody gave a shit about. And you perhaps understandably were a little bit down about that, especially since you'd spent the last three months in your basement. And to put more context on that, we had raised our entire pre-seed, which we closed on February 28th, which was a good time to close, by the way, because two weeks later, like other members of our Techstars cohort, whoa. But yeah, it was... We had raised money for this idea. We were running with it. We had this momentum and I, I thought we had it. So you thought you had it and then you very much didn't have it. And at the board meeting, you were like, maybe we just, you know, take a pause for a while. And I'd say that euphemistically, perhaps neither your lead investor nor I were particularly okay with the idea that we were just going to mothball this thing when you still had the majority of your investment in the bank begging to be spent. Yeah. I don't know what your guys' problem was. I was perfectly you know, prepared to just curl up into a ball in my basement and just cry for a couple more months. It seemed like a reasonable course of action. So after some verbal ass kicking or inspiration, we could say, <laughs> magic happened. So, well, you call it magic. There's a line that is thrown around quite a bit in my family, which is pretty full of entrepreneurs, which is the harder I work, the luckier I get. And there's a certain amount of hustle that happened in order to get us from, oh shit, we sort of had product market fit, but kind of not really because we're learning more. And then, oh, COVID. All right. Our customers are not early adopters anyways. And this is going to be almost impossible. And, and after a while, it's like, yeah, this isn't going to happen. There's that moment. And I think, Chris, there's a moment when you're curled up in your basement in a ball, not to put too fine a point on it, when it was like, this isn't working. We don't have another thing. And then it was coming up with just the strategic plan, God, like July, to say, all right, if this isn't going to work, we can either give the money back or we can just do the thing. And doing the thing is figure out what's growing, uh, figure out how we set up customer interviews for those and then see what happens. And I think the, the plan that we proposed to the board was really like lackluster. It was like, we're going to reach out to 10 people a, a month and try and figure stuff out. And the board quickly came down on that and said, you're fucking kidding you. And I think, Chris, what you're alluding to as well is step one in any effective pivot begins with the recognition that the current strategy is doomed to failure. Like it, it, it's not working and it's not going to work. Yeah. Right. Which there is you. honestly, I've, I've tried to tell companies to do this before as a coach for them. And usually people are like, oh, but it still might. We don't really know for sure. And it's like, no, it's a fight club moment. You have to realize that you're going to die. It's just, it's not going to happen. This way of doing the company is not going to happen. And, and, I, and I actually brought it up. The Rebrook Tactical Sales Plan. Basically, we said, what are the different things we could look at that might be growing right now where we have a chance? We, we found 17 of them. 
So, and how did you identify those different groups? We, I mean, it was a really whiteboard. just a matter, yeah, a <laughs> whiteboard and guessing. Like everybody came up with the, what do you think is working right now? What is growing? What are you hearing a lot about? And we put our ear to the ground. We looked at news articles, like, but I think the, the important thing here is this was not a, I am the great leader. I'm going to help us achieve this journey through this dry parched land and we'll be in the promised land afterward. It was me going, Hey guys, this is what we need to have happen in the next three months or we're fucked. And that's going to be unfortunate for everybody. So, so this wasn't just you coming up with these. It wasn't you and Rich coming up with this. It was the entire, how many people were on the team? We had seven people on the team at the time and we're like, Hey, what's growing? Like everybody, like literally we said first part of this, everybody find three industries that you think are going to be potentially interesting and like find lists of companies, figure out the market size. Everybody has to do something because there is too much work for a single human being to possibly do all this. Some of them looking back at the list were a little bit too tied to the financial sector. But as we said, we stretch out and said, what's growing during a pandemic? What's growing? And, and a lot of that was just like, I don't know, what are we seeing a lot of articles for? What are, we, what are people talking about? Where are people actually spending money? Which is why we came up with some things around cannabis and actually licensing for cannabis, which is an interesting thread if you pull through where we ended up. But what the first step was is we each took a number of these and said, I'm going to do some research to find out whether this is a possible candidate. And if something didn't make it through, like it's not growing, there's not, it, it doesn't seem like there's, any, there's a, a large enough market. Oper- large enough market, it has to be growing, it has to be someplace where it feels like it's squishy enough where we could go in and it's worth having customer discovery calls. And most of them honestly didn't make it past that line because it was like, oh, this looks a lot like the thing we just left. And the last thing I want to do is leave one shitty party to go to another shitty party. I want to go to the good party. Quick quick question. How did you determine what was even acceptable put on the list? And, And what I mean by that, right, is you guys were previously an HR company, you were a machine learning company, you were a compliance company. Was it possible to put like a yogurt company on your list or what no. requirements were, were necessary? We had a couple like guide rails, but they were vague. But we were trying as much as possible. Is this a place that we could utilize some of our core tech? Now, fortunately, we're like really good at infrastructure. So our core tech was really flexible. So as long as compliance was a major issue for them, we were just done doing a nice to have company. Like we're like, no, you need to absolutely fucking need this product in order to operate your business. That was key one. And compliance. Yes. And I would say maybe because as we were going in, we kind of knew the industries that were growing. And then after we said, okay, these eight or whatever, we're not going to do. And then the job is to come up with at least six initial interviews. Well, actually, I think we said three initial interviews. And then if it's interesting, we find more. If it's not interesting, you get to throw away things that aren't interesting. The only thing that you want to be careful about is where am I going to spend my time? I'm not going to set up 30 interviews if I think from the first five, this is just a dead end. So the thing is, we need to get a lot of proof once we realize it's interesting, to not waste the world's time and our investors' money, we need to say, all right, this feels pretty good. Let me interview more people. Let me interview more people. Let me interview more people. And, and honestly, part of, yeah, go ahead. Part, part of that selection process for the different industries. So we started off with 16 that we 17, said, yeah. here, 17 that are potential. And then of those people who are researching the industries, part of the job was find 10 companies in that industry that are like the market leaders that we could potentially talk to. And we'll figure out some way to reach out to somebody in there, but we at least needed that starting point. So we kept on building up this list. And then as we refined it down for those six, we're like, okay, everybody now, everybody find 20 people in each of these things. So it was just grunt work. I mean, you can Google search just about anybody in these industries. And if they were growing, there were articles and people were talking about certain companies. Investors were excited about this or that about it. So we were able to reach our way around and find a lot of potential targets to talk to. And for a lot of those industries, they would actually be willing to talk to us. Some of them, it was almost impossible, but on a couple of them, like Bitcoin was one of them, like blockchain technologies, all of them were super happy to talk with us. And and I could just, as a teaser for the future, we had like a 30% open rate from blockchain companies. 
part, once we get to the part where we're saying we need to talk to lots of people, we found lots of email addresses and wrote, and lots of LinkedIn people and reached out like freaking crazy so that we could have a, a, a connection. Crypto companies opened it up 30% of the time and not to bury the lead a little bit, but sportsbook companies opened up the email something like 60% of the time, which is crazy. So I, I, I want to get back to that in a second. But first, so you're saying that you had a goal of talking to five to 10 companies in each of these 17 different... So they had to pass the first research hump, which was a person just spends three hours researching and, and you're allowed to say, of my three verticals, this one I think is garbage and I don't think we should spend any more time here. Just based on okay. one person's reporting back to the company, like we don't need to do it. It's not going to, I don't think that we should really go after fill in the blank. What um, do you think you called that list of 17 down to gar- before oh. you started talking to people on the phone? Six. Six. Yeah. Got it. So just in the base research, which could only, you know, which we're damn. allowed to throw things away. We're not allowed to say like March forward, right? Fucking love that. So one of the other things that, 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 Chris, that I heard you mention that I really think needs to be called out was there were certain verticals where it was very difficult to get a hold of people. And I've written in obviousstartupadvice.com the idea that you need to sell it before you build it. And that idea, if you can't even fucking get people in an industry on the phone, like how in God's name are you ever going to sell it? And I love the idea of potentially discarding a a potential market just because at the end of the day, it was going to be impossible to to have conversations with folks about it. We had very early on in the company life proven to ourselves that we could build an amazing product that nobody would give a shit about. And (laughs) multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. And we're like, you know what? Fuck this game. We're good at building stuff, but it doesn't matter. And we kind of had a time limit and we knew we needed to build something that somebody was actually going to pay money for. And you always know, right? Like you read all the stupid stuff and lean startup and it's all like this obvious startup advice on, oh, you only do this if you do that. But you get so caught up in what you're doing in the moment that even after nine effing companies, I still fall into the trap of falling in love and I'm a product guy. That's what we do. So, and it's, oh, here's a cool thing. And we built it. And I'm going to continue to build this cool thing. Oh, look how cool my thing is. Don't you so, guys? Hey, hey, guys. So, yeah. And, I, and I, I've also, so I've done, what, shit, six, seven companies of my own, whatever. And the, the cool idea trap is going to kill you. Because, like, Eric, you said a really good thing. And that's very much we, what we did. Is like the open rates for the, for the emails and the willingness to talk to us for particularly it ended up being blockchain cannabis companies and sports better bookmaking and that was one of the things like that's the first great sign are they willing to talk to us is the industry growing does it feel like there's a potential we could be running downhill is this an if this is an industry that's growing we know that they haven't solved all the problems yet banking is so tell me about the right tell me about the emails right because you narrowed the 17 down to six how many people do you think you emailed an initial outreach to. So this is just email, not including LinkedIn, because LinkedIn, 30, we have more to talk about. 30,000 people. 30,000-ish, yeah. How did you get a list of 30,000 people across six so, verticals? So we, we have another guy that we work with who was new and didn't know that he was good at, at growth hacking. <laughs> it turns out he is. And basically we said, hey, I can give you tools that are, I can give you like $200 worth of tools. Gray hat would be great. Black hat would be bad. So go do it. And then, you know. We only got banned from LinkedIn four times, and we only had to fix his email three times to log him as a non-spammer. And we did some crafting of the emails based on response, right? We, we did some looking back and forth so that we could increase the open rate and we could increase the meeting rate. So a couple of quick things. First of all, what were the tools that you specifically used to get that list? Because people are going to want to know. The ducks thingy. So, so LinkedIn, so LinkedIn came, comes into the story a little bit more after we decided on it, but duck soup, D U X dash soup was, is one that we basically, if you find somebody you like and you like their connections and you can write a very terse, uh, but compelling LinkedIn message. And again, we experimented like crazy around it. And I had a different one as somebody who's been doing this for 20 years than John did. 
who's been doing it. This is his first time he's worked with a startup or second, third, whatever. But we crafted those so that we could really just pump up the response rate and the connection rate. Right now, basically, we said, hey, we're doing this thing. I'm blah, blah, blah with Rebrook. We're, we're a startup working to make gaming licenses easy. Would love to connect and, and give you a demo. And that's the whole message. And basically, that was what we said in LinkedIn. That was pretty much all we said in, uh, in email. And we tried to make the subject line be very actionable. Uh, it was basically something like, hey, we're a startup. We're looking to talk to... Uh, looking for advice. We were looking, looking for, for advice. advice. And, we, and we'd love to pick your brain for 15 yeah. minutes. Do you have 15 minutes to jump on a call with a startup? And basically, and- the message was... We don't know this. We think you might. We'd love to find out if we can identify some problems in the industry that we might be able to solve. I actually think yeah. that was pretty close to what the message was. This is where you found massive differences? Basically the same thing across industries. The open rate and the response rate were vastly different. Anything yeah. in banking was like a 3 or 4% re- reaction rate. And- also, just how did we get that many emails? A lot of it was we would find the email of one person there. And then we would find the LinkedIn of all the other people there. And then our growth hacker guy would literally just make the list of all the names in the format that company used and send emails to every single one of those. Yeah. And How then, long did that take him to do 25, 30,000 email and LinkedIn it took uh, connections? It two months, three months? No. For the email portion of it, it's, it was like, yeah, three weeks maybe. Because a lot of what we were doing was setting up these 15-minute calls. And, and really, we, we'd, we'd ask for 15 minutes, and if it was good, it went longer. If it was short, like at 10 minutes, he'd be looking at me going, like, what do we ask this guy? What do we ask this woman? It's, I'm not going to come is, up I mean, this with is, something. This is really the triumph of brute force here. This yes. is there, was, there really was no special sauce here as much as just find some people in a vertical and then keep searching for more people that were like them. Sort of, right? There's an approach that we had and, and something that I think is really important. If somebody knows something and in, 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 in is an expert, ask them. They'll tell you what the problems are. They'll tell you where to go. And if nobody exists who knows that, then you have to become the expert. So how do you become the expert? So I'm going to talk to everybody who's been there all the time. And so really, it's just exposing ourselves. It sounds really bad when I say it that way. It's just putting ourselves... In front of lots and lots of people who know problems that things that make their them have a bad day, and, and that's really a big part of. It. Once we got somebody in the meeting, and maybe you don't want to you don't want to go there yet, uh, Eric. But once we got people in the meeting, it was like we're really trying to identify pains in your industry that we might be able to solve. And that's literally what we asked: What is your biggest pain? What do you need help with? And it was it became very clear that going forward in this, it was really blockchain. And sports books that had the problems. They had a lot of pain. Blockchain had a lot of pain. But our very next question is, what would you be willing to pay to solve that pain? And blockchain was like, I don't know if I'd pay anything to solve that pain. And we're like, okay. And, and blockchain, they also said, well, there's, we're trying to figure out which side of the, of the KYB and KYC line we want to be on right now. It's like, all right, well, I can't help you make that decision. KYC is know your customer. KYB is know your business. It's about anti-money laundering stuff and how opaque you want to be in, as part of the solution around blockchain. So I want to roll back for, for one second, because one of the questions that I commonly hear from founders, whether it's they're pivoting or whether they're just trying to, to figure out a market in the first place, is this question of how do I get people to talk to me? How do I get them to open up? There, and from what it sounds like is if there's a market that has a pain, a true pain, it almost sounds like they're only too willing to yeah, share that I, with I anybody who asks. I don't think a question because if you ask somebody what their pain is, they don't even have to have a severe pain. It's, and it, this could be COVID helping us. We would get people on and there would be some people who'd be like, oh my God, I'm talking to a person. This is so great. Let me tell you about my day and this. And oh yeah, I know that's really annoying. This other thing's annoying. Have you guys ever thought about this? I really like this new TV show. Have you guys seen it yet? And it's like, okay, cool. Like if you can't get somebody to talk to you in a COVID world, like God help you. I don't know what you're doing. Like, yeah. It's not, you can't smell. It doesn't even matter. Yeah. The, the people who have pains, who are in a growing space where there are more things to solve still are going to open the email more. They're going to say yes to a meeting more. 
Uh, and then when you're in there, they have more to talk about and, and the conversation flows a lot better. So there's none so, of this like trust building shit. It's literally just, hey, hey we're a startup we're a in startup, your space. So we're, we're a startup. We're actually trying to figure out what we're going to be doing. We are really transparent about it. We know that our previous thing didn't work and we think we might be able to solve some pains in your industry. We'd love to pick your brain for 15 minutes. That was the whole I fucking email. love this. This is amazing because it literally what you are going to people, and I've never thought about it in this way before, but you're basically saying we are a potentially capable group of people that can build software and we'd be interested in literally any software that you'd like built. Yeah. And that was the key difference. Who says right? no to that? A lot of people. <laughs> so it was good that yeah. we talked to a lot because it took over a hundred years of these things before we finally got all, all told we had something like 175 customer discovery calls. Yeah. Across how many verticals? The, 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 the six, but as we got farther along, we'll have more cannabis. We'll have more, we had probably most sports books, obviously, because for a while we were doing 40 a week, which is nuts. And those were longer yeah, we ones as we got into it. 10 calls a day. And you'd just be freaking exhausted by the end of it. And then you'd have to set up all the ones for the next day. It was work. It was just doing the work. And I love that. The industry that our customer success associate really pushed for was the gambling sportsbook industry. And it was one of the first calls with a major sportsbook, like the largest, like one of the largest sportsbooks in existence and their compliance officer took the call and so previous to the call before you go there chris previous to the call you and i were sitting there and we were like shit okay let's just let's pitch something because why not right hey yeah so we've been doing like it's a the lot list. of times they it's ask like, hey what do you guys do and we're like and we're well, like we're yeah, thinking right. we could so do this what we said was you know we've been looking at during customer discovery and stuff we, we've been doing a really quick really great api to be able to identify the bad actors so that you can not do business with them and you just stay totally compliant and so maybe what we can do with gambling is we'll find all the athletes and coaches and all the trainers and all the people who are in the league and all the people on the self-exclusion list. And those are the people that we, we're just going to retool it. And she was like, yeah, no, nah, I don't give a shit about that. Yeah. She was like, nah, that's not interesting. <laughs> and we're like, oh, it's like, shit, this is going to be a yeah, 10 minute call. And then she did. That's when the, I mean, the this, turnaround was great. Yes. Immediately after that, she's like, yeah, I don't give a crap about that. But let me tell you about this thing. And she went on for an hour about how big a pain in the arse getting all this compliance stuff was done and you know how like right now she had this much to manage and next year it's going to be an order of magnitude more and she's like no fucking way i'm going to get an order of magnitude more people i'm going to die and if you can solve this problem for me i will throw money at you quote unquote so that was a magic line there's another <laughs> magic line when she said i thought about doing this company and, and starting this business at one point. And then she also said, I've, tried to been, I've been trying to convince somebody to do this startup. Uh, and, and those are all like, this is amazing. And then she also said, <laughs> hey, I, used, I came from the mortgage industry and we have a thing here. Let me show you. And this is what you do. You look up individual things and everybody collaborates and all the information's there. And she was like, I need this, but for gaming. So it's basically, we were on video, but I was like, Chris, this looks really promising because I'm hearing magic words. But I was so bitter and jaded at this point. I was so bitter and jaded that everyone's like, oh, super great. Let's do this. I'm like, hold on. A market of one is not a market. It's just indentured servitude. So there's two things. Before you go there, she did say her current solution was working 14-hour days, working on the weekend, and using Excel spreadsheets to manage everything. Yeah. So it's like, all right, we, ha we know who our competition is. Our competition is cheap, but it's not a solution. And the company's not really solving this. And there's yeah, just Microsoft all sorts is of probably things. not going to build a special module. For no. It. And this is, this is something that Chris has said multiple times over the last several months, which I now parrot to anybody who will listen, which is it's great when your competition is Excel and overtime, because yeah. you're not having to replace software that people have already gone out on a limb to get procured and installed in the organization. Anybody will happily fucking replace Excel. So to Chris's point where he was going before, 
And I think some of this has to do with what's happened before in previous pivots. To keep the company alive, they end up becoming a dev shop for a lot of healthcare companies doing DevOps transformation yeah. and whatever. And I personally have had the problem of, I created this amazing thing in the early 2000s and we had one really big customer and we kept on having to do everything that really big customer wanted. We didn't have time to do anything else and the features they wanted weren't ones that our, our target user really wanted. As Chris said, we became a dev shop and, and it's cool. I'm glad that there's one person that's super interesting. And this is the first time we sort of heard those magic words. But, and I think Chris, you and I agreed on this is we need to talk to a whole lot more people yeah. who are just like this one. Yeah. Our growth hacker, who was a younger guy, was like, oh, we did it. We won. And we're like, yeah. <laughs> and Chris and I were Gosh. like, you see this scar right here? This is from being a dev shop. And this one over here. Yeah. And so it's like, we need to find a whole lot more people like this. The interesting thing is we already knew what, what the, we had an idea about the problem was it was easy to find the other 23 or whatever sports books. Well, and that the nice part was like, this person was like, I will introduce you to other people in this industry who have the same problem. You will help us all. Because we're on, a, we're on a chat thread where they, we're talking all the time. Everybody has this problem. It's like, like okay, everybody? we'll do some introductions. That'd be great. So it was teed up. But the reason why it was teed up is because she felt the pain and it mattered. And she hated it. <laughs> do something the world cares about and you start running downhill a little bit. You can still screw it up. But at least it's like, okay, I know that it's worth doing to somebody. Yeah. So now the question is, how many people are like that? How much are they willing to spend? How quickly can they say yes? We got to six industries. We got to this one industry. And then we found some stratification in the industry. But we reached out to, like again, literally another 100 people just in gambling. Like at this point, we had the process down. So we were able to really build that up quick. And they all had the exact same problem. They had the exact same pain and they wanted the exact same solution. And we described it in the words that that first sports book person used. And we're like, so if we had something like this, that's what, oh yeah, no, that, that's exactly it. Yeah. It, it's finally nice to hear somebody who understands our pain. So the one thing that you can hear from this, if you're a startup person, is your marketing language comes out of the mouths of your customers. Always. It always, always, it's like, oh, it, it, this is what I want it to be like. It, and, and how we got to the next place with that one customer, obviously we did tons of outreach to find more people like this and identified in sports books. And then obviously we went out farther in other verticals and other parts of the gaming industry. But what we, what we said was, what would it take for you guys to say, this is something that we want to use? And that's when we, we said, all right, What's the shittiest version that we can put together quickly that we're embarrassed to show them? And Chris, tell, tell the story a little bit about how long that took. Because that so, wasn't the first meeting. That was like the second or third meeting where yeah. we got to. What is the bad version later, of this look like? We circled back and said, okay, we've confirmed this. We've gotten at least a couple more people to say the same thing. And we kept on, we kept on keeping on. We did not stop or slow down the process of finding more people. But we got enough confirmation where I was willing to, you know, Okay, this sounds good. We have some confirmation. What is it, the thing? And she explained, I need a thing that does this. And she was very definitive on exactly what it needed to do. And I could tell you, but it would be meaningless. But she was very clear. And we're like, okay, we went four days later, we showed her working technology of that thing. And she's like, yes, that we will pay money for that. So Chris, uh, feel free to tell uh, Eric to edit this part out if you want. But what she wanted was somebody fills something out once on, on a web, uh, on a browser. And, and then she was like, and then it magically creates three different perfect. PDFs. No, the secret of filling out PDFs. <laughs> and so internally, oh, internally, we called it the, the PDF filler outer tool. It was like it's so it's embarrassing. So technology. So if you think about where Reaver came from using AI and machine learning and all this stuff around making resumes obsolete and doing all this artificial intelligence crap and all this algorithmic stuff to be able to identify bad actors. This is a- Now what, you automatically what, fill what up PDFs. What they wanted was a PDF filler router. And I mean, obviously that's the beginning. And on top of that, you build a communications layer. On top of that, you add e-fingerprints and e-notary and you, you provide all of the yeah. really great reporting tools to make it a really full functioning tool. But at the end of the day, 
they were willing to pay money for a PDF full art. So yeah, they were like willing to pay money, like significant money. As in, we could build a business. Well, if that was the only bit that we had, so maybe not a venture scalable business, but we could all make a good living if that's all so, we did day in day out. So here's what happened. She said, "Hey, do the thing." I don't know, X number of days later, four days, eight days, whatever later, we presented, here's a bad version. And then she said, oh my God, this is amazing. You need to show other people in my company, the people who do onboarding and people in operations. And so we showed up at the next one. What was that, two weeks later? Yeah, with the senior VPs of this Senior VP, chief operating officer. Like we had six people on the Zoom. I had to use a bigger screen to fit them all. Uh, who were like, you could tell they're slacking this each other amazing. to say, this is amazing. And we're like, yeah, we fill out PDFs like nobody's yeah. business. The and PDF, we knew that. that we had it. Also, this is another magic language. When they said, how much do we have to pay you to make it so that you don't work with our biggest competitor? <laughs> and then also, can we have first right of refusal if somebody wants to buy you? And the reason why that came up, we learned this later, and we can get into how the research we've done since then, is anytime a state goes online with sports betting, there's a huge amount of marketing spend and there's a huge race to be first because if everybody wants to gamble for the first time, they're going to use one app and it's really hard to get them to use other apps if they've already got money and stuff. Yeah. So if we can make them back that market share. Yeah. If we can make them win that battle of being first to market, it's not a question of how much time do we save over here with this compliance officer onboarding. It's like, how much money do we save the marketing department? who's got a lot of zeros in their marketing department. And so that's yeah. where it's like, all right, there's a couple different places this money might come from. And so that's us learning a whole crap load about the market. So I remember the story of this meeting where they brought somebody in who asked some very pointed questions, specifically if it seemed like to try and trip you up. Yeah. <laughs> and in every single case, you actually knew answers like give me an example here so there were cases this was a person who used to work as a regulator so he was very familiar with the process one of the things when we were this was before we had anything other than a bunch of wireframes and the world's shittiest demo so that's what we showed him a wireframe and the world's shittiest demo and it was working and he, he then said, you talked about doing this fingerprinting thing, how are you gonna do that? And we had spoken with so many sports book and asked them about their process and their pain that we knew exactly what the process was. And we knew that it's not like we could create digital fingerprints because the states wouldn't accept it. So we're like, blah, 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 we'd have to work with the state and this is how we would do it. And this is how we're doing it in this jurisdiction and this jurisdiction. He's like, huh, okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then he would ask us like, oh, what about the notary? And we're like, we know that this one person, I mean, we, we had the, like, literally we had the playbook. Is it fair to say that if you had gotten this meeting after just talking to the first prospect, you were just like, yes, we, we know there's product market fit. We know that we can build this. Would you have navigated that meeting effectively with a sample set of one? So, no. So, the, so we're missing a step that we did. So while we're doing this outreach and getting introductions to these other sports books, there are a couple really well-attended gaming conferences that happen every year, except this year, when it would be really great for us to meet everybody. And so what we said, basically, I put the growth hacker, and we can give a name. His name is John. We put the growth hacker. We asked John, We said, basically, I said, find everybody who's been on a panel or given a well-attended talk at any of these conferences in the last two years. And let's reach out to them and see if they're willing to talk to us. Because we don't know things about this market and we don't know things about this industry and we absolutely need to. And so basically we just wrote a little thing that said, hey, I'm with a startup. We are building a tool to make it uh, really easy to manage gaming licenses across jurisdictions. Would love to jump on a quick call and give you a demo. Yeah. That was the whole thing. It's easy to get the compliance officers to talk to you. Getting people who want you to pay them money, super easy to get those conversations. <laughs> so we part of so we use that same message for all the sports books, but we also used we we used Duck Soup to be able to reach out to all the people who uh, were in the industry had who had given all those talks and who were very well connected within the gaming industry, and that ended up being ridiculously useful because it is a mafia. It is super tight. And all not people, literally a mafia. Not, no, actually, well, at times it is eh, literally eh, a mafia. So we don't. But yeah. you try not to work with those. But it's very tight knit, and they're like that's where all the people 
go to those gaming conferences, it's huge because everybody gets to catch up and they've known each other for 20, 30 years. And they're like, oh, yeah, that person started that sports book over here and that person helped them with their, their launch in the U.S., whatever. And then they'd say, you guys are doing something that's really interesting and I think the industry really needs. I'd love to do some introductions for you. And, and, and then the last prong that we also did, because we were still, I thought I was going to be doing a bridge round. We ended up doing a seed round because people wanted to give us more money. But we took the course of looking at startups in the space, not necessarily doing what we were doing, but just getting their feedbacks and opinions on stuff. And that's actually how we found one of our advisors is he was a gatekeeper to a venture firm. So we were trying to reach this venture firm who did a lot of sports betting startups and was involved in the space. And they're like, you should talk to this guy. And halfway through that conversation, he's like, hmm, this is interesting. Are you looking for an advisor? I work for shares. And we're like, huh, kind of. <laughs> so, and the guy was like really well connected, hooked us up with the person who eventually ended up being lead for this coming up round. I'll pile on to that where we got pretty good after literally, and this, the founders should hear this, we were doing... Um, all, basically, we reached out to and talked to and had meetings with and demos with most of the U.S. sports books, yes. which is it's not easy to get them. It's not easy to get the right people. But we, well, we managed to do that. But beyond that, we realized that there are other people in the space who do affiliate marketing or are affiliated with sports books and also who do the slot machines in tribal jurisdictions in, you know, all across the United States all of whom need to get some kind of licensing, whether that's occupational or organizational or vendor licenses or whatever. And so we were really expanding out and talking to people, a lot of them from those folks that we met who are part of the big, who had spoken at a lot of the big conferences or are very well connected. Yeah. And, and, like, and, and because, me... well, before we go there, because we got pretty good at being able to identify both the pain and how we are approaching the market and say, hey, we're new here. It looks like you've been here forever. We're trying to figure out what happens after we do this low-hanging fruit of occupational licenses in sportsbooks. And that would go really, really well because a lot of times people, after they are between jobs, they become a consultant. And so we talked to a lot of those people who were giving us introductions to other sportsbooks again and other people in, in the gaming industry. But I think in the last week where we were doing lots and lots of pushes uh, on this before we had to say we need to stop doing outreach because our funnel is too full, good problem. I think in that last week, we got two new investors because they're, after we finished describing what we were doing and how we were doing it, people were saying, so you're raising money. Are you looking for any additional investors? Because I know some people who know the industry really well who might want to kick in. Chris, when did you launch your first paid pilot? Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So that was literally last week. Yeah. yeah. At the time that you launched your first paid pilot, how many people do you think you had talked to in the industry and industry adjacent? 250-ish. I want every fucking founder to hear that again. 250 conversations. And that's not conversations. That's people conversed with, often multiple conversations, at the time that the product finally went live. Looking at my own experience and the experience of lots of people that I've worked with over the years, in most cases, founders are lucky to have had conversations with 10 potential customers by the time they launched their first product. And you were orders of magnitude more. One thing to note is it got easier and easier uh, to be able to get meetings with people. Because if somebody likes you, likes what you're doing, thinks that it solves a real pain, thinks it's interesting, thinks it's potentially investable, then they're going to be happy to open up to their network because they're doing their network a favor because you've actually doing something that matters and solves a pain. And I would say that it is rare. It was incredibly rare to have a customer discovery meeting or just a networking meeting that didn't result in, in an end greater than one. It's like the, the COVID spread. Every meeting we had turned into more than one meeting. That is, uh, by the way, that is always the ask at the end, in addition to asking if we can put them on the update list. So we've got a couple minutes left. And specifically, Chris, there's something that you and I talked about a couple weeks ago where I had asked you when you thought you might get to a 
consistent pricing strategy. <laughs> and your answer was incredible, right? You said something to the effect of, before we can do that, I really need to understand the onboarding process, which is a fucking HR thing in order to figure out how we can sell to the compliance department. And that triggered this question, which is, how much did you know about the financial industry when you decided to pivot to OFAC uh, compliance versus how much do you know now about the online sports betting industry? So this is also a discovery of how much we really didn't know. And it really comes down to if you ask me anything about getting a sports betting license right now, I will know the answer. There's literally nothing you could ask me that if I didn't have an exact answer, I would know at least three people who could provide it and I could get back to you real quick. But it has been an unbelievable process because we have been walking the trenches with some of these customers now and we see exactly what we need to do. We have literally also started to apply for this. Like we know so much more. I thought I knew something about the financial services industry, but I really knew jack crap because I didn't talk to enough people. And the fact of the matter was I knew about the problem that one person had and I assumed that everybody else had a similar problem, but it turned out that for all those, we had seven signed pilots out of Techstars, Western Union, like seven people who said, this sanctionsless compliance thing is going to be awesome. And then as we went through this painful nine months implementation process with them, we learned that every single one of them wanted a vastly different implementation of the same basic words. And those words meant very different things to each of them in their respective industries. And it, we just never were able to get close in on it until the very last where we finally started to figure it out. But after nine months of poking lightly at it, we got the same basic effect of a two month crash course of just all in. So, so th there's an, there's another piece of this that I think might be relevant for some folks. So for us, so it's an API that helps people identify bad actors, right? Checks things, whatever. And so either somebody's already got a lot of traffic and they're they're in, and, and they've got a really big volume or they're relatively new and don't have a big volume. If they're relatively new, then they're more willing to try something out because they don't have a solution yet, but they have no cash. And even if you do it, it's not worth a lot. And the people who have a lot of traffic have a huge fear of switching, already have a solution in place and nobody's telling them, hey, you know what? You should save a little bit of money or do this thing that's slightly faster or we'll catch a little bit more. I don't know that they have, for the ones that were big enough to make a difference for us financially, the pain wasn't visceral enough for them to be wanting to do something about it. And so it, it, then it was like, all right, how do we find companies that are just about to launch and then are going to be huge? That's a unicorn, right? Yeah, that is that is and, literally and, finding a needle in a stack of needles. It, it's like those just enough of those companies don't exist in the time frame that we have. And that was the hard, that was the hard pill that yeah. we had to swallow. It, it, and the harder pill to swallow was we actually did find a couple. And they were like, oh, this is awesome. This is the best implementation that we've tested with. We're trying like, some other ones. Our, and it's yours is your own that broken found it. Or our abandoned software stack that we had built and moved on from. And this was like a month ago. So we were well into sportsbook land at this point. But one of the customers that we were working with before is we just did test and your stuff was the only one that had the latest updates. We we tried it with Thomson Reuters and we tried it with this other massive company, Bridger LexisNexis, and yours was the only one that had the updated list. And we're like, we haven't touched that code base in three months. I mean, it's cool that we're good at software, but you know, where were you three months ago or where were you five months ago? Well, this is a key point here, right? Which is you guys are great at software. But there is not a question about online sportsbook licensing that you can't answer. That is the world of difference between making great software that nobody gives a shit about and making even a piece of shit software that everybody cares about. And the, the latter is way better because 
I know you can make the software better, but now you truly understand that market. Guys, this has been an amazing hour. Like I said before, I really think that this is going to change some founders' perspectives. And Chris, in particular, I watched you go through battle after battle over the last several years. And it is fantastic to see that at the end of this, you've learned something, you have (laughs) changed the way that you operated. And in doing so, you're finally building a a product for a market that uh, that cares about it. Now, and I, I think for me, it's been a good relearning of things that I already knew to be true, but also just the the power of having everybody rowing in the same direction. Like, as I said at the beginning of this, it wasn't me deciding to go to do a lot of research and try to find an answer. I had the good fortune of surrounding myself with people who were smart, who were motivated, and who were willing to do the work. And everybody pulled. And again, I'll stress that our customer success associate is the person who identified this market and did the research that led us to this point. And sure, everybody else put in a lot of effort to make that happen. But had we not gone out to everywhere to collect as broad a set and done the work to talk to as many people across all those as possible, we would not have found that particular compliance officer at that particular time who was just desperate for the solution and really put us on this path. Thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to getting this posted in the next couple of days. Thank you. Well okay. Good talk to you again, Eric. Cheers. What have we learned? Most importantly... Customer discovery drives everything. By the time Rebrick had launched this new product, they had spoken with over 200 people in their market. They'd become experts in the world of online sports betting licensing, and they did it all in just a couple of months. If you haven't spoken with hundreds of potential customers, maybe you shouldn't be writing code yet? Thanks again to Kelly Perkinson from Auckland, New Zealand for making this show possible. And if you've got a startup, check out my weekly articles at obviousstartupadvice.com and feel free to give me a shout. I'd love to chat with you. Music was written and performed by Royce Marcoulier. Till next time, have a great week and a great last month of the year.